Hi, this is Tanya Chijay Prince. I am the community's go-to expert on domestic and sexual violence. Now, for nearly 25 years, I've served victims and survivors to heal their wounds, especially at what we call those emotional trigger points. Emotional trigger points are things like poverty, racism, sexism, disabilities, geographic isolation, uh, any of those things that seem to make it so much harder to heal. But guess what? Harder does not mean impossible. So let's get to healing, shall we? Hello to all listeners. My name is Sean James and I am a cisgendered male from Brooklyn, New York. I'm 34 years old. And first and foremost, I would like to thank Tanya for the opportunity to hopefully add something to what is already an informative and engaging blog. We met through passionate discourse on, of all places, Twitter, which hopefully shows others that good things can be found anywhere if you're looking for them. This talk was born from a conversation Tanya and I were having a little while back. We were discussing the fact that it's only over the last two generations, millennials and Gen Z, that the world at large has acknowledged and accepted that while we were developing civilization and doing many remarkable things, we thoroughly neglected to address the socio-emotional shortcomings of our society. We created agriculture, government, mastered flight, and went to space while telling boys not to cry and girls not to speak up. So now the challenge for those of us born over the last 35 to 40 years is how do we go from what we were given to where we ultimately need to go while unlearning what we have been programmed with and learning and growing in real time while teaching the next generation of young people and addressing things like climate change and a litany, a litany of other challenges we face. It is my belief that we first have to understand how to live healthy lives while dealing with unhealthy circumstances. That will be the focus of my talk. This topic is near and dear to me since like everyone in the world. I have experiences that have shaped me and left scars in some cases. And what I have learned is that there are things in your past that you can move past. However, there are things that are omnipresent that will always be a part of you. Where we can draw power from that which at times renders us powerless is in acknowledging that these things, what, acknowledging what these things are, excuse me, and deciding how it will affect us going forward. The harsh reality of life that most of us are never told is that we cannot fix, even if we live to be 100 years old, all of our emotional and spiritual maladies. However, what we can do is live a healthy life through these unhealthy circumstances. My personal experience on the matter lies in what I consider to be the, my two most defining unhealthy circumstances, losing two children at the age of 20 and growing up as the child of the other woman. My dad was married when he and my mom got together. And like most parents, they didn't think how their actions would affect the child on the way. Parents don't tend to think about the fact that no child has ever asked to be born. If more of them did, the world might be a better place. This situation produced what would become the first unhealthy circumstance of my life that would be omnipresent. As a young black man in Brooklyn, New York, that was being raised in a Caribbean household, my whole family having immigrated from the island of St. Vincent, Vincy Massive, I had the pressures of meeting the very narrow ideals of what a man is to them, as well as the equally narrow ideas and ideals of what it means to be a black man in America, and having to do so without the prime example most little boys need, a father. At about age 15, it had become clear to me that I had at least intellectually surpassed most of my family. I found myself confused as to who I was supposed to be versus who I wanted to be. And like most kids that age, I went the route of anger and self-destructive behavior. That lasted a few years. And before I knew it, I was 19 with twins on the way. As they say, life comes at you fast. Before I could address my dad issues, 
I was about to become a dad. And then on March 30th, 2005, my two sons, Makai and Devon, were born. They were three months premature. Devon passed away after two days, and Makai, after signing DNRs each week, for those who don't know what a DNR is, it stands for do not resuscitate. Uh, what it's for is essentially the people at the hospital have determined that this person is in a situation where they may flatline at any moment and signing a DNR basically gives them the okay to not resuscitate them. So I was essentially telling the hospital it was okay to let my son die. So for about six and a half months, each week I would go to the hospital, sign this form that uh, said it was okay to let my son die. This was after having a conversation with the entire neonatal care group of people, a bunch of doctors and nurses, all very good people who wanted to do their jobs. But at the end of the day, they brought it to me and my kid's mom at the time and said, hey, listen, your son will never have a normal life even if he leaves this hospital. You're 20 years old. You'll be taking care of him for the rest of your lives. And then you have to deal with the burden of who will take care of him after you are gone. So weighing all of the information in front of us at 20 years old, my, and my kid's mom was 19, we made a decision to sign those DNRs, and then subsequently, uh, after about six months, roughly three weeks before my 21st birthday, which is November 6th, uh, to pull the plug on my son. Prior to all of this happening, uh, one day I went to the NICU to visit my son. NICU stands for Neonatal Intensive Care Unit, for those who may not know, uh, to visit my son, Makai. The nurse tending to him had the same last name as my father. I won't use names because, you know, obviously I don't want to, you know, put too much of the business out there. But uh, she had the same last name as my father. Now, my father's last name is very uncommon in America, a bit more common in the Caribbean. But, you know, it's a name that I've never encountered at any other point in my life. So I figured, OK, maybe this is a cousin of his or something like that. So I walk out the hospital. I call my dad to ask him, you know, is this person somehow related to him? He asks me, what hospital is it? So I tell him the name of the hospital, and he says, and I quote, and I'll never forget it, oh, shit, I'll call you back. Two days later, he calls me, and he goes, yeah, that's my wife. Now, this is the same wife who kept my father from me all my life because when she married my father, she told him, any children before me I embrace and accept, any children after me do not exist, and I don't want to know about them. Whether you think that's fair or unfair, it depends on what side of it you fall on. But I can't be mad at her. That's his wife. She should expect her husband to not cheat on her. I think it's reasonable. <sighs> so I'm 21 with all of this on my shoulders. I got the woman who kept my father from me, taking care of my slowly dying son. I got a father who's not being a father to me. And I'm working my butt off trying to create a life for my son who may never come home. So I did the only thing that I thought made sense. I went to a friend and I asked him for a gun. Now, you're probably thinking you're listening to me talk right now, so I probably got scared and didn't pull the trigger. You'd be wrong in that way. I definitely didn't pull the trigger because he didn't give me the gun. But had he given it to me, I assure you I would have done it. The, I've learned that my greatest strength is my ability to do anything that I have set my mind to do. While I'm dealing with all of these different situations, I get, I'm getting promoted at work. I'm doing fantastic in my career at the time. I was in retail management and I was moving up the ladder pretty quickly. I was making more money than most of my family. I buried myself in my work. So from age 21 to 25, I worked in contemplating and in my life on most days. And then one day I got tired of hurting and crying and wanting to die. I realized that I was standing in the deepest, darkest hole of my life and I dug it myself. 
So I decided to put down my emotional shovel and to slowly climb out. I've always said that the beauty of the bottom of your barrel is that it can't get worse. Now, that can be terrifying or that can be empowering. And for a while it was terrifying. And then slowly but surely it became an empowering thing because what it did was it gave me a filter for my life. So any moment in my life that I go through something that is particularly trying, whether emotionally or spiritually or mentally or however you want to go about it, I get to run it through a filter of, is it worse than this? Sometimes it gets measured against my kids. Sometimes it gets measured against other things that have occurred in my life, but it always runs through that filter of, is it worse than this? And if it's not worse than this, it's usually not that bad. So then I set myself to figuring out how do I tackle these things? Because I just, I had, I, there's not too many, there are not too many institutions you can go to outside of maybe psychiatry, which culturally, for those who don't know, whether Caribbean or just African-American, black person in America, psychiatry is something that's always been very taboo for better or worse. So I began to read. I read a ton of PMA books, positive mental attitude books. I studied Maslow and I read other psychiatrists' writings. I studied the ancient Stoics and, and the ideology behind that. I started working out because I ate my pain and my weight ballooned to 325 pounds. I'm 6'4", so I carried it well. But I remember one day running for a bus. I was probably maybe 26 or 27 at the time. I ran for a bus and my knees hurt. And I thought to myself, if it hurts at, if it hurts at 26, 27, what's it going to do at 45? And the thing I did that was probably most important, I took it one day at a time. I have played basketball my entire life. And when you're down 20 points, there is no 20-point shot. You get back in the game one good possession at a time. I learned that the pain never goes away fully. It's like a scar from a bad cut. We learn to live with those because a physical, because physically you can see it. You get cut real bad, you have a scar, you just know the scar is there. It's not going anywhere. It's, it is what it is. People learn to live with bullets inside of them, you know? So we, we learn to live with things especially when it's something as tangible as a scar or a bullet that they just can't get out of you without doing far more damage. The problem with emotional scars or spiritual scars, mental scars, they exist in our mind, within our willpower. They're far less tangible, so learning to live with them is a far different task. It takes persistent and consistent self-inventory and self-awareness. For some, that comes in the form of psychiatry, but like I said, from a cultural standpoint and just for me that wasn't really an option it was just always a taboo thing so I learned how to heal on my own it probably took longer than it needed to or perhaps another way to look at it is it took as long as it needed to either way I'm 34 250 pounds and eternally grateful for all of it my dad and I still have a tumultuous relationship for my part tumultuous relationship at this point excuse me but for my part I've done all I can to facilitate a healthy and productive relationship between he and I I have come to understand that he has his own unhealthy circumstances. Unsurprisingly, my dad had a tumultuous relationship with his father. At uh, age 15, I believe he told me, his mother came to him because he and his father had gotten so, uh, the, the relation became so untenable that his mother came and said, you're gonna have to go. So at 15 years old, my dad moved out of his parents' house and uh, that relationship was never repaired. So it's unsurprising that he and I or he and I have the relationship we have based on the circumstances in front of us. And really just at 76 years old, I don't imagine he's changing. I haven't had any more children since I lost my sons. If I'm being completely transparent, part of it is a fear of the repeat situation. 
But the much bigger reason is simply, I'm selfish, and I love to travel, and diapers and formula are expensive, and finding sitters is an inconvenience I don't want. Also, have you looked at the news? The world is a mess. And as a kid whose parents didn't think of him before they had him, I'm still debating if I, in good conscience, can give this world to someone who never acts to be here. It is my dream that something I say in this recording, this talk, will be of use to someone. I hope it helps. Thank you for listening.